This is Jackie Pulverari from Criminal Justice Cafe on our second episode with Craig Stanlin. And um, Craig, after hitting rock bottom, was forced to make a choice, give up or rebuild. He thought he had it all until he lost sight of what's truly important, which many of us do. Um, but Craig made the worst decision of his life, losing everything along the way, including his own self-worth. Through the painful, terrifying process of starting over, Craig ultimately discovered that when you have nothing, anything is possible. And I think um, a lot of people can learn a lot by Craig. Craig is one of my mentors. I love him dearly. Today, he's an author, speaker, a reinvention architect. He specializes in working with people whose lives have fallen apart, helping them reinvent themselves by showing them how to rebuild their self-worth, and create the extraordinary lives they've always wanted. I'm very, very excited and proud to say that Craig is finished with his, well, just about finished with his first book called Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison, and he is working on it being done next week. Is that correct? So we are looking to lock the manuscript in either this week or next week. And once the manuscript is locked in, then it is four months to publishing. So targeting around May 2021 for the release of the book, which I'm super excited about. And it's such a it's such a surreal place to be because I've worked on this for about five years, a little bit over five years of writing this book and just going draft after draft after draft and getting an email from my publisher saying, once we lock it in, your work with the words is done. And that was such a weird email to get and to just realize that it's, I will be, I will be letting this thing go. And it's, it's, it's out of my hands at that point. And it was just so bizarre to, to get that email, but also so exciting and empowering. I can imagine. Craig, tell us how you came about to write. First, thank you for being here because you are just I'm wonderful to me. And you've done a lot for me personally. So tell us, how did you start to even think about writing this book? So first off, Jackie, it's a pleasure to be here. You're one of my favorite people. I was so psyched when I got the email when you asked me on. So I, I'm thrilled to be here. I can't wait to jump into what, what I know we're going to jump into. But I started writing the book when I was in federal prison. I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't feel comfortable. I had great friends in there, but I didn't feel comfortable talking to them about the things that were going on in my mind. Certainly didn't feel comfortable to talking about or talking to it to staff. And so I reached for pen and paper and I just started writing. And the first draft of this book was written in my, you know, those black and white composition notebooks that we used in, in high school and in college. I have several. Exactly. I've got my, the whole first draft was written by hand in one of those books. And the very first iteration of it, I was in such a bad place inside prison when I decided to write this. I wrote 186 pages in three days was how much I had inside of me that I had to get out. 
how much of those original 186 pages actually made it into what is going to be the finished book, I don't know. But just to get it out, just that the cathartic nature of it. And that that's how I started writing. Yeah, it's true. I know that um, from the day that I self-surrendered, I think I wrote something like five chapters of a book. And I didn't even know it was going to be a book. It was just writing down thoughts because, like you said, who who else is there to talk to, really? You have to come yeah. to terms with things. And it's it's very difficult to, uh, to talk about those things through email because they read emails. It's very difficult to talk on the phone because they record calls. And I didn't I didn't feel like I could express myself fully the way I wanted to, even on the phone, if I was to talk to family. And I also didn't want to burden them. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a big advocate. I mean, as a social worker, I think journaling is fantastic, especially when you're in a bad place. Um, it just is. And I think you have learned so much. Tell us how you, and I am curious because I have, I don't think I've ever talked to you about this. How did you come to terms with, okay, I can take what I've done, those poor choices and wallow in my own self-pity the rest of my life or do something about it? Because you really have changed your whole life. Completely reinvented my life. I mean, from scratch. And it came down to, it came down to hitting my absolute rock bottom of planning how I was going to kill myself and, and living with the vision of what my suicide would look like. My brain would play it on repeat over and over again. And it was in very graphic detail. And it got to the point where I had to make it stop. And that's when I started thinking, I was like, can I hang myself in the gym? Can I hang myself in the woods? Can I, you know, and that, but I can't go into the woods because then you might get charged with escape if you're, if you're caught. And then it's additional time onto the sentence at a place that's not a camp. So, you know, that didn't seem like an option. And I was struggling so much with this suicide ideation and I couldn't tell anybody. Again, there's nobody to tell. There's nobody you can talk to. You mentioned suicide in prison. What happens to you? You get put in solitary. That scared me so much. So I bottled it all up and I get an email from my friend, Sean, you know, out of the blue saying, Hey man, can I come visit for the weekend? It's like, yeah, you can come visit. Visits aren't monitored. They're not recorded. I can tell Sean, this is my best friend for 30 plus years. I can tell him anything and he's not going to judge me. So we, we sit down in the visiting room and I go to share with him these, these stories that I, I'm thinking of and, and the thoughts I'm having. Before I can open my mouth, Sean starts to speak and his life is a complete mess. <laughs> his life is he's getting a divorce. He's got money issues. He's got work issues. And there was such a sadness in my friend's voice and in his eyes that I, in, in our 30 years of friendship, I've never seen. And it was at that moment that I realized I had worth and I had value outside of the things that I had always thought made me worthy and gave me value. And that is when I decided that I have to make something out of this. That was, that was the impetus. I didn't know what the hell I was going to create out of it. I had no idea. But that was my, that was my turning point of, I, I need to, I have to give meaning to the suffering that I've caused my loved ones. At that point, I didn't think I was worthy of giving myself that meaning. You know, I hadn't reached that point yet, but I had to give meaning to my now ex-wife, to, to my family, um, to society, 
and and that that's what started it all. It's funny because I recently um, had to revisit Hamlet for uh, for a class I'm taking, and, and the to be or not to be fascinates me. Um, which is that is the question, and you were that was your question to be or not to be. I mean, you could live in complete misery, or end your life, or make a conscious change to just all right, I, I got to do things differently. But I think you and I, and I don't know if you felt the same way. I felt almost blessed. And I said this to my husband the other day, how many people get the chance or are forced to have that time to reflect upon themselves in everyday life? Would you have done that? Would you have stopped and reflected? No, I d- it's impossible to say what could have been, 99% chance that I would not have done that. I didn't, life was going along just okay. Why mess with something that's okay? It took the the bottom falling out for me to really go to that level of introspection and to really look at myself. And I don't think I would have, I don't think I actually would have had the courage to do yeah. that because that requires a great amount of courage. I don't think I would have had the courage I wouldn't have had the impetus and I would have missed this opportunity. And you're right. What a blessing in a sense. It can be that, I don't know about you, but when I was in prison, the disconnect from the real world felt very much like being um, a goldfish in a bowl. You can see the real world going on around you, but you can't touch it. You can't engage with it. You're very much a, a spectator on the bleachers, but not out on the field. And I, I hated that. I hated that disconnection. But when after that visit with Sean and I decided to turn this around, I looked at it and I said, what do I have? You know, I feel like I have nothing, but what do I have? I have time and I have unfettered time. I, I, I don't have bills to pay or maybe I do, but I can't do a damn thing about them. All of that life on the outside that I can't play and, and touch that's actually, I have a break from all of that. So all I have is time without any of the nonsense of the outside world. And I have X amount of time, months to, to go within and do that work. Yeah. I mean, I felt the same way I had, I would have never absolutely. I know you said 99.9. I would not have taken time for myself. I never did before. I don't even think I know what that was. So when I first self-surrendered, I went crazy because I had all this time. So you could make two choices. Um, but you, you have inspired me. And we've just recently met. We, we haven't known each other for five, six years. And within that short period of time, your energy and what you put off to the world is amazing to me. It, it really is amazing to me. And your outlook on things. Obviously, I didn't know you then. I know you now. How different is the Craig before versus the Craig now? I love this question. I I would like to believe I'm still, before committing the crime, I was a good person who made a terrible choice and a series of terrible choices. You know, I know inherently I was a good person, but I am completely different. What drives me, what fuels me, what sparks me is so different. There's no, 
no more chasing of money and of things and where I derive my value and my worth are completely different. I'll give you I'll give you a quick story that I think might actually illustrate this very well. Before I launched my coaching business, I worked at a gym in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, became very friendly with a lot of the members there. And one of the members worked for a very interesting company doing very interesting things similar to what I used to do, but but a little bit different where the where the court order that bars me from my industry wouldn't have actually applied. I could have worked for this company and he offered me a position saying, you'd be great. Um, just so you know, the base salary is 150 and the commission is anywhere from 150 to 200,000. So total compensation is, you know, well above $300,000. Very nice living. I'm not making that at the gym by any stretch. And I said, you know what, Mark, can I think about it? He goes, of course you can think about it. And I went home and the answer came very quickly where I was like, it is not what I want to do with my life. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I hadn't put together the coaching practice. I was writing the book, but I hadn't put all the pieces together, but I knew it's not what I wanted to do. And I'd be back to that trap of chasing money and chasing promotions. And I I went back to the gym the very next day and I said, I want to thank you so much, but I'm going to pass because it's not what lights me up. And he goes, I cannot tell you how happy I am with that answer. And I think that is a testament to how different I am. It is too. And, you know, it's funny because I know a lot of my social worker friends will be listening in and shoot me for this one. But as a social worker and someone who has a formal education in social work, I've learned more from you as a life coach. And I think the difference is as a social worker, I can relate to people. I could sit here, but you showed me a different way of thinking, a different perspective, a different thought process. And the one thing I took that I continually use every day that you taught me was you're thinking of it this way, but is that the truth? Is that really what's going on here? You know, if I'm sitting there and I'll, I'll say to say to my, I don't know, my friend, my husband, my daughter, um, I know what you're thinking. It's and right away. Then I say, I stop myself. Is this a story I'm making up in my head or is this the actual truth? Can you talk? A, I'm very much into to coaches and life coaches and you're one of the best I've, I've, I've talked to. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. And I, th- that is such a, it's such a, a simple, powerful tool that requires awareness. So I congratulate you when you're having that conversation with a daughter, with a husband, with a friend, where you say, start saying something and you catch yourself. The tool requires awareness. And the name of the tool really is, it's just truth and story. And it's identifying what is the truth and what is the story. And I'll use an example from my own life. And this is one that I I used to struggle with. I'm a federally convicted felon And because of that, I'm a terrible human being. I lived with that for so long and the shame behind that. Eventually, I wrote that sentence down. I wrote it all out and I underlined what is the truth. And I put a line delineating where the story begins. The truth is, I am a federally convicted felon. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That is a a truth. Because of that, I'm a terrible human being. That's the story I'm making up around the truth. And the ability to delineate those two is so powerful. And to 
to be able to stop the mind from from running off to the races, really, because once we start that, once the story starts, it's so easy to it's like putting a snowball on the top of a mountain. And by the time it gets to the bottom, it's an avalanche. And when we can catch it before it becomes that avalanche, we really start seizing responsibility and agency over our lives. And it's just from that simple tool. Um, one of my clients, you uh, won't mind me using, I've asked if I could use this. I texted this girl and she, I haven't heard back from her in three, you know, two days, three days. She hates me. Let's, let's write that down. Let's, let's write that down. You texted her. That is the truth. You did it. Greg, I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I said, now she hates you. Do you know that to be true? And he said, no, I don't. I said, that's the story. Stick with the truth. Yeah. You texted her. That's the end of it. And I think particularly with felons, it's such an easy road to go down because there's such a stigma. There is a terrible stigma. Um, I think I, I read an article the other day about, I mean, everybody talks about Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman in the short time that they got. And I, I read an article that Wendy Williams, who is also a celebrity, is putting out all over the place that she got to pick her own prison. And I thought, wow, that is such a story. If she, Wendy Williams herself said to her, that's not the truth. Absolutely. No, no one gets to pick their own prison. I know that for sure. Um, but it, it is something that I use every day. And with every conversation, I probably overuse it. But as a felon, again, I am very hard on myself. I have a lot of guilt, as you know. I tend to beat myself up in the stigma out there around being a convicted felon is terrible. And sometimes I'll say to myself, I don't deserve a second chance. And then that's just the story I'm telling myself. And there's so much, there's so much there that we can unpack. And, you know, you could look at somebody else, your friend makes a terrible choice and goes to prison. Would you ever tell them that they didn't deserve a second chance? No. Never. Never in a million million years. And we could take it from another aspect. If somebody actually had the audacity to say to you, to your face, and you may have actually even had this because some of the conversations I know that we've shared, but if somebody were to say to your face, you don't deserve a second chance, what would your reaction be to that? Oh, I'd be appalled. I'd say, Absolutely, I deserve a second chance. Right. Who I was is not defined who I am. So we wouldn't we wouldn't say it to a, uh, a loved one or some you know where we care about. We wouldn't say it to them. If somebody were to say it directly to us, we would defend ourselves and we would stand in our own power and say, "How dare you say that to me? I absolutely deserve a second chance." But when the voice comes from inside of our own head, we believe it. It is and how interesting is that? So, what would you say to the communities out there? who truly believe you don't deserve a second chance, how would you change their mind? What would Craig Stanlin say to the communities standing up on a podium that don't believe felons deserve a second chance, don't believe that we deserve to get a job or have our credit restored? Or What would you say to those people? You know what? 
And I wish I could take credit for this. I'm going to give credit to who credit is deserved, and it's going to be a very surprising source. And I believe it was Bowling for Columbine. Michael Moore sat down with Marilyn Manson, of all people. Marilyn Manson, the rock star, in his full regalia with his makeup and his goth look. And he was being blamed for Columbine. You know, some of his music was was being blamed for that. And I believe, I believe it was Michael Moore. He asked, what would you say to those kids if you had an opportunity? And he said the smartest thing I think I've ever heard. He goes, I wouldn't say a thing to them. I would listen. And I apply that to anybody who wants to say that a convicted, convicted felon does not deserve a second chance. I would ask questions. I would want to know why, and I would listen. Then from there, I'm not going to try to change anybody's minds. I think trying to change somebody's mind is basically futile. Are you going to term, turn a Democrat into a Republican through one conversation? You're going to turn a Republican into a Democrat in one conversation. You're not. And trying to do that is to bash your head up against a wall. And I think it's fighting an, a fight that cannot be win one. So I would, I would listen and then ask questions. And I would state how I feel and be done with it. That's brilliant. It's similar to your book, Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented Myself After Prison. I guess people need to uh, humanity itself. I mean, you know, it, it's a bad time right now. We're so divided and I think that unity needs to come. And I would love to see part of that unity be with the um, former felons because we get such little, I believe, we get such little recourse to redeem ourselves in society as a whole. We have our little communities um, and I did notice a lot of people who have been to prison end up having their circle of friends be former inmates, federal, um, usually federal felons, white collar especially, end up having their friends are mostly white collar. Why do you think that is? Is that because they can understand each other? Is well, I do. I do think there is a, a level of understanding and our brains seek comfort. It's, it's what they're designed for. They seek survival and comfort. And if you're comfortable with a certain group, you're going to stay within that group. And you also get a little bit of confirmation bias. You know, you start saying things and other people are going to agree with you. And that feels good to be agreed with. And I'm going to I'm going to gently challenge you on that a little bit. I, I, I know what you're saying to be true, but I'm curious. And since I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't know, dissect somebody that I don't know using a hypothetical. I don't want, I don't want to do that. But I'm curious for anybody who falls into that trap, how many stories that they're listening to that is telling them that they can only be friends with a certain group and that other groups wouldn't welcome them in. You know, I know for me, working through my shame. I have my friends in the white collar community, but the majority of my friends have never been to prison. And it is, there's, there's an ability to, when we stop judging ourselves, we no longer open up the door for somebody else to judge us. And there are always going to be doubters and there are always going to be haters and have that stigma. 
well, what a wonderful filter that we have to eliminate people from our lives. What a wonderful way to eliminate people who are not serving us. That is, if anybody cares to judge me poorly for something that I did in the past, then my thought on that is they're judging themselves for something that they did. Anytime we judge somebody, that's basically self-hate projected outwards. Yeah, it's more about it's more about the person judging than it is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that is so valuable. And knowing that, you know, I I I used to I used to be, and I'm sure you're you can relate to this, crushed by your story. Yeah. You know, to to say the words my story had such a weight to it and such a uh, oh my god it was just like there was no light at the end of the tunnel and just this horrible shame-filled feeling of my story now when i say my story it, i know that it is a tool that i use to be of service to others it empowers me no longer hide from my story and when i no longer hide from it I don't believe, I, I honestly, I don't get judged poorly anymore when I meet new people and I tell them about my story because I, I mean, own it. You've come so far too. I mean, one of the reasons I started Criminal Justice Cafe is I'm back in school getting my master's in criminal justice, but it fascinates me. Every aspect of criminal justice fascinates me. You have the felon, you have the correctional officer, you have the FBI agent who's indicted these people. And I think a lot of people think that they want to do that. And it's not, it's their job. Last week, I had a criminal defense attorney on who represents the worst of the worst. And he often gets death threats because people think that's what he wants. For me, I'm at a point in my life where I feel like a square peg trying to fit into a circle. So I'm trying to figure out where I'm meant to be, where I'm supposed to be. And this podcast, for me, it's it's really for me, and I'm hoping so many get out of it, is to go along the lines of criminal justice and meet everybody involved in criminal justice and their thought process and try and put together why the system has become this unforgiving system to create people I shouldn't say to create people because I create my own issues, but um, to end up feeling I don't fit in anywhere. I don't fit in with a a repeat offender. I don't fit in with a violent offender. I don't fit in with somebody, a white collar offender who's been to prison for a very long time. I don't fit in any longer with the crowd that I did because they don't understand I've been to prison and that changes you drastically, culture shock and all. So I I think this podcast is going to be a wonderful tool for people in the community and society to understand criminal justice and and really where we're trying to to go from here. And um, your book, I, I hope everybody out there reads because taking that blank canvas and reinventing it. You've done it. And you've been home. I've been home since 2015. When did you come home? Um, Went to the Brooklyn Halfway House in 2015. I was done with that in 2016 and then came off of supervised release in 2019, May 2019. So you hit the pavement running and that impresses me. I guess I'm, I'm just still trying to figure it all out. 
You know, what came up for me when you were saying all of that, and I want to congratulate you on the podcast and your vision for the podcast. And I think that's going to be so brilliant for people to see all the different components and aspects that really go into it. It's so easy to read uh, an article in the New York Times about something or see it on CNN, but not to understand the nuances and how many people are truly involved and the different components. And to shed light on that is going to give people a perspective that they can't get from a newspaper article or something on CNN. So I think that's brilliant. So I congratulate you on that. And then the what came up for me, though, when you were saying that of fitting in is that's just, to me, shame. That's just shame telling you that you don't fit in anywhere when you fit in exactly where you're supposed to be, which is you. Oh, that's way too much for me, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when I don't even know where I belong. (laughs) That's a lot. We'll have to schedule a session. (laughs) We can unpack that further. But really, that is, that's, well, one of the, one of the, and you know this through all of your education. I mean, one of the, the tools of shame is isolation. And it's telling you that you are alone and that you don't fit in with somebody else and it wants you to be alone. So it just can, shame lives and breathes in the dark. It wants to breed in that, in that, in that space. So that's why it's telling you that. And then working through that shame, you'll realize that there, in a sense, when you really work through that, it's, it's very surface level to identify different groups. But when you work through that shame, you realize that we are all basically the same, even if we've done things. What I think is so interesting for me in the work that I do, I went to prison. Very few of my clients went to prison. But where we connect is on the emotions that we feel, on shame, on fear, on not trusting ourselves, not knowing we're enough, not knowing we're worthy. The emotions are where we as humans connect. Our stories are only the vehicle to get there. So when we let go of that story and its ability to rule us and we connect and we meet each other with our emotions, that's where we bond. And that's where we, and then then that's where you realize I belong everywhere because everybody has felt shame. Everybody has not trusted themselves, not felt worthy, not felt enough. Yeah, and it's easy right now to isolate yourself. I do that often. And I'm trying to be real and raw on these podca- podcasts. I mean, we don't need to know, I don't need to talk about my story every single podcast because it's, my story's out there. Anybody who re- watches my podcast knows my story. But the isolation right now is so easy. Technology has made it easy for me. COVID has made it easy for me. Um, working at home has made it easy for me. Not having to go out to um, interact with people have made it easy to me. And I think, I think to myself, how many others, not even felons, how the world has been affected by this isolation and how little we're socializing and what's going to be the outcome of that. Well, I don't even think we know. We don't know the full fallout from COVID yet. And we won't know for quite some time. And we, we as humans are tribal creatures. We're used to being in a tribe. We're used to being in a community. And this isolation can be very suffocating. And I think what's so 
it's so important to be able to leverage technology can isolate us. It can also bring us together. I mean, how great it is that I can see you and have this conversation right now? You know, right. this is an opportunity to connect. It is. I'd love to be sitting across a table from you and have that even more visceral experience. But I think that's for everybody. It's so important to, to put the phone down when you're just sitting on Instagram for an hour and call someone, FaceTime someone. And, and and try to have as much connection as possible. Yeah. Because it's, it really is very isolating and that's just not healthy. Oh yeah. If I pick up my phone right now, I could tell you I how much I was on, uh, not even social media yesterday. I should, wow, I really do need to put my phone down. <laughs> the first thing I do when I get up is, okay, social media, I have to post everything. I have, and every once in a while I say to myself, okay, I need to put it away, put it on do not disturb, spend a little quality time. I have, um, my parents are 82 years old, so we're very careful. They're in isolation, but I will tell you the mental health aspect has been destroying to them, to especially, uh, to the elderly that are home and can't, can't go out. And they're so used to, to visiting with their loved ones and going over. And, you know, even if I'm sitting there having tea with my mother, I can touch her arm. I can physically feel her. Now, even with Zoom, I can't sit there and, you know, shake your hand or I'm Italian. So I talk with my hands or like pat your arm. <laughs> that to me alone is isolating. Well, you, you just touched on something that reminded me of prison. You, I don't know what it was like where you were, but there's very little touch in prison. There's very, very little touch. You know, we would, if we were passing each other in the hallway, there'd be a fist bump, you know, and that that's about it. If your hands are full, you can maybe do an elbow. But I remember one time where I was having a really rough time and my bunkie, who is uh, older than me, you know, a little more of a father figure, he put his arm around me. And just that putting his arm around me was such a magical moment for me that I was being touched it's just so amazing. So to to not have that with our our parents and loved ones is it's horrible. It really is. And I think that's why we have to leverage technology in the best ways that are healthy for us. Yes, we're missing the touch, but at least we can see each other and see each other's facial expressions and talk with our hands and and do various things. I think that's true. That's another reason why your book will be so important to so many is because after COVID, we will all have blank canvases. And I think we have to reinvent ourselves as communities, as the United States. We have to reinvent ourselves. And it is so very important to have the tools to do that. And not enough people know those tools. You do. You're very lucky that you, you know what to say and how those, what those tools do, how to use them. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for everything that I've learned. And it's really turned the whole experience on its head where I can look at it and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. There's not enough money in the world to give up who I am today and what I've learned. It's no yeah. way, yeah. not at all. I mean, the the level of freedom and peace and joy that I experience on a daily basis is beyond reproach. And, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever trade that. I know it's funny. I know I've told you this, um, and this isn't a plug for anyone in particular, but I did do the Unleash the Power Within weekend. It was a virtual weekend with Tony Robbins. 
And a lot of people say, oh my God, it's a cold. I did full out for a weekend. It was a Thursday through a Sunday and it was nine in the morning until 11 at night. And there, it the experience, it was absolutely crazy. There was people from all over the world. There was 22,000 people all virtually on a Zoom, 360 degree virtual stage and talking about how do we start over? How do we, and it all comes down to your mind. It all comes down to learning the tools to sit down and reinvent yourself and start over and put a blank canvas out there and get up and be in the best state every day, best state of mind that you can possibly be in. And I try and do that every morning. I wake up, I say what I'm grateful for to myself. Um, if I said it out, out loud, my husband would think I'm having a nervous breakdown. He already, he already thinks I'm crazy because, you know, me wanting to do a podcast, I hate being on camera. As you know, I'm like, oh God, I'm going to be on a podcast. Um, but I do every morning. I say what I'm grateful for. And every morning, I think that we can define how our day is going to be, even with those little nuances all day long. And that is something that I've also learned from you. And I am grateful that you have come into my life because even though we've had a few, very few conversations, but the conversations we've had have been so powerful that I have to say, and, and I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm not trying to sell anybody. I'm just trying to, I just believe in good mental health for everybody. I think anybody out there can always use a, a life coach. I hate to call you a life coach. You're like a, you're like an Aristotle. <laughs> and you know, it's funny. I don't, I actually don't even like the term life coach. I hate it. It's terrible. You know, I try to explain what I do. So, you know, reinvention architect, I made that name up oh. when I decided that I was going to go into coaching. I was like, what? And I had, I had a friend who said, you know, she just said to me, she goes, you've completely reinvented your life from the ground up. And that just stuck. And I started thinking, what kind of coaching can I do? What am I capable of? I was like, I know how to reinvent. I know that. I know how to do that. So when people, I try to explain people, and they're like, oh, you're a life coach. And it's easier. It's accessible to them. I'm just like, yes, I'm a life coach. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes I'm a life coach. I tell but, you, I'll put out to all of our viewers. When they, when, when they see this, I would like for them to put one comment on what you think someone who gives you value in yourself, who helps you think a different way, who helps you reinvent your life. What do you think they should be called? Cause I'm curious. I hate the, the term life coach. I really, or even uh, people use other things, a teacher. I, I just think that you offer so much more than um, that terminology. So it, I'd like to say, I'd like to have other people see what they would, they would put down for a name for you. I'm, I'm so curious. I can't wait to see that. And you said something in there that was really interesting. The, the starting over and reinventing and, you know, we are at this such a huge juncture, if you will, for the entire world. And we, we talked about this a little bit in the beginning. It really is when, when your life has burnt down to the ground, it's a choice. You can stay in the burnt ashes of what was, which eventually to me, when I started turning everything around, you know, I thought about staying where I was. And as horrible as that seemed, there is a comfort in that. But I knew what waited for me was just a life of regret. And I would eventually, the shame would consume me 
It would turn into regret. It would turn into bitterness. Or it can make the choice to take that first step out of those burnt ashes and quite frankly, into the unknown. And I think that is one of the most important and one of the most difficult choices that a person can make is even if you're not where you want to be, there is a comfortability in that and a security in that. And taking that first step out is oftentimes into the unknown. And I mean, you're a fan of Tony Robbins, so you know that we crave certainty. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we crave certainty. And to, 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 to venture out into the unknown, that's ludicrous. It goes against our entire way of thinking and our, our, our brain's survival mechanism. But what an amazing journey when we do. It is true. There's so many people in this world that are in that position now, Craig. You talked about when you wanted to commit suicide. And there are people in this world today, they're losing their houses. They've lost their jobs. They're losing their spirits. And they're in their houses. What do you say to them? You were there. You were contemplating suicide. You've lost everything. How do you make that? How do you, it's, you've got to find this inner strength, but how do you get there if you have no one helping you and you're just, um, just trying to grab up at something? How do you, how do you get there? Well, I'll start with what I would say to someone is, do you truly want to die? Or do you just not want to feel the way that you feel right now? And I think that is such a powerful reframe of suicide ideation. When I, I, and I can look back, you know, very easily with hindsight now, when I was planning that, I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to feel the way that I was feeling anymore. What a significant difference that is. And I think being able to step back and quite frankly, as dark as this may sound, the decision to kill oneself is, believe it or not, empowering. You're still making that choice. You still have agency and responsibility for your life. And that unto itself helped lift me up and kept me going, that I, can, I, I have that choice. And showing that showing that everything is a choice and accepting that everything is a choice. And that's how, that's one of the key steps I took to start rebuilding and reinventing was there were three, there were three definitive initial steps that I took that I didn't realize I was doing them at the time. But when I started uh, writing the book, when I started doing coaching, I was able to see, I was like, wow, those are three definitive steps that I took. The first one was accepting reality. Second one was accepting responsibility and the third one was accepting choice. And I think for you know people in that really dark space is to, to accept that everything is a choice. And that's empowering. That's truly, truly empowering. And to know as well that everything is temporary. Uh, I was going to say. Everything is temporary. It feels, especially when we're, especially, you know, you know, uh, being arrested, going to prison. It feels like you're going to feel that way forever. Mm-hmm. It feels like this is going to be my state of being forever. And it's not. And we forget, think about college or when you're in your 20s and you had your first bad breakup and how awful that felt and the heartache, you know, when you really, not that it's easier as you get older, 
but well, that first God one, that happened. <laughs> yeah, but that, that first that first one is, is really hard. And when you're in it, you're like, life's never going to be the same. Life's never, I mean, you're just, you are in it. But looking back and having that reflection on it, you're like, oh yeah, that ended. That that pain that I was feeling ended. Even as dark as this is, when a loved one passes, when you are on the floor, your head between your knees crying, crying your eyes out. It feels like you're going to feel that way forever. And yes, you can still miss them. Yes, you can cry when you think about them, but it's not that same level of feeling. And that's just tying to everything is temporary. And I, and I do believe that. I mean, COVID is temporary. It, it will eventually pass. The anger in this country, I am hoping, is temporary. And eventually we will heal. And um, I tell my kids all the time the things that they go through as young people. And I remember sitting in, in court getting sentenced. And my attorney, who was on last week, said, um, "This is. I know you don't feel like it, but this is temporary. And he said to me, is there true happiness or is there just moments in time where there's euphoric happiness and then there's moments in time where there's sadness, but those moments are temporary and you move on to the next. And I, I, I kind of am not that dark. I like to believe that there is true happiness. I'm at a place now, I'm living my best life in my fifties and um, trying to figure things out. And I think that's in, that's being in your big, when, when you can be transparent with yourself in the world, which obviously I am being, I think that is the best way to really look at yourself and fix things and change things and alter what you don't like, add maybe something in that you do like. Um, I went away this past weekend very unexpectedly, as, as you know, very unexpectedly. And I found myself in New Hampshire with my husband. I would never have, I was so out of my comfort zone. And it was one of the projects that I have to be doing every day. You asked me before the podcast, what am I doing today that is out of my comfort zone? It is doing this podcast. So um, this, this past weekend, it was going away spontaneously without having to plan for five hours of where everything is, all everything on my desk had to be perfect. But um, I think that I was truly happy the minute we left there, I was sad. And I knew it was temporary. It was, it was temporary that I'd be, I'm a nervous wreck right now. But as soon as this podcast ends, I will be happy again. Well, isn't, so there's so, there's so much good stuff in there. You use, so do you do, um, do you do a word of the year at the beginning yeah. of the year? Do you, have you ever heard of that? I it's, have, but I've never, I've, I've really never done it because there's so many words in the dictionary that I could choose. I don't never know which to choose. My, my, my word for this year is transparency. So I love the fact that you, you said being transparent with ourselves. And I think that is so critically important is to, to turn that lens on ourselves and see, be okay with seeing some things that we don't like, because yeah. the more, the more we push those things away, the more we're denying a piece of ourselves and how are we ever going to be whole if we deny a piece of ourselves? And that includes our story of going to prison, um, you know, whatever it may be, the bad choices we made. We deny those. We're denying a part of what makes us us. And we're denying our own wholeness. And being transparent with ourselves gives us that opportunity to look 
say, I don't like that so much, but I'm going to do something about it. And, and to talk about the, the happiness, everything is temporary. <clears throat> and I think this is why gratitude is so important, is to express those gratitude for and understand that even happiness, even our greatest moments, they are temporary. And that's okay. And it's so cliche, but we can't have light without dark. Uh, if, we were, if we were if we were happy all the time, how would we know we were happy all the time? Yeah, we would know. Oh, uh, my kids would be dying right now because I say that to them all the time. I tell them you cannot be sad. You can't experience the good without the bad. You cannot be happy without sadness. You can't have love without hate or anger. I, I don't like the word hate, but you can't have love with anger. You can't just can't have those things. And I will ask, how do people get in touch with you? If I mean, they want to read your book, I know it's going to be on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, tell tell us more. So yes. So the book is going to be available on all the major platforms. Amazon and Barnes and Noble will be available electronically, paperback and hardcover coming out in May, 2021. And then if they wanted to connect with me, it, I'm on Instagram every single day. And that is Craig underscore Stanland. And my website is craigstanland.com. And I also have, if people are interested, I also have a TEDx talk titled How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison. And that really, that chronicles in, in very specific detail my fall to rock bottom and that visit with Sean and the moment that my, my life turned around. It's phenomenal Ted talk. So if anybody um, has some time, which I know you all do, cause we're in COVID um, watch, watch, watch Craig's Ted talk. It is phenomenal. It really is. And I thank you for being here today. I always enjoy talking to you. And every time I do, I learn something new. I really do. It's amazing to me. I never think I can learn enough about somebody or from somebody. And I do every time I talk to you, I do. So thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I had so much fun talking to you every single time. I mean, I love our conversations. And I just want to reiterate the to acknowledge you for getting out of your comfort zone, tackling this podcast, having the vision for this podcast that you have for it and executing on it. And I think it's going to... I think it's going to have an impact and it's going to make a difference and it's going to give people who are not or have not been in the system in one shape or another, it's going to give them a new perspective. And I think that is going to be paramount in removing the stigma that is there. Thank you. Thank you. And that that's, that's my goal. So, um, for 2021, by the end of 2021, I hope to have at least 100,000 followers and and none of them do I care if they have been inmates or not. I do want to have touched the people that have never experienced criminal justice or this justice system. So that's that's important to me. Well, I look forward to helping you hit that 100K mark. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye, everyone. Have a great week and we will see you next month. And I have a very exciting guest next month. I can't tell you who it is because it'll blow everything, but it'll blow all your mind. So thank you again. And we'll see you next month.